open your Bibles to Paul's epistle to the Romans, page 1125 in your pew Bibles. I have been so looking forward to this day to begin with you the study of this epistle. It's been on my heart and mind for a long, long time. I think I have read the book of Romans maybe a hundred times in the last months, just reading and rereading and thinking about this magnificent letter. This is indeed a a gem, a jewel that through the pen of the Apostle Paul and their inspiration, the Spirit of God, he has recorded for us. We know it's such a jewel, beloved. It appears first in the New Testament following the historical books, the Gospels and Acts, although it is not the first written chronologically, yet it appears as a doorway, as a gateway to enter into the rest of the New Testament. We read the Gospels where we have the life of Christ. We read the book of Acts where it details the explosive growth of the church in its first 30 years. And then we enter the mag- through the magnificent archway of the Epistle to the Romans, the outworking of this incredible reality that God has reconciled a fallen creation back to Himself. This is a magnificent book, and we are not going to rush our way through it. We will take some time here working through this amazing, amazing letter. So I've thinking about uh, this series, beginning the series, there's so many ways you can begin. And uh, one of the things that has been going around in my mind is sort of reflecting on the state of the church, the state of the culture in which we have been placed. We are now in the beginning throes of the 21st century. God has put us here in this time and place with these people, our neighbors, those whom we work with, family members and friends. And He has given us a task to do. To go into the world and make disciples. And so, as we examine this epistle to the Romans together, it is going to really sharpen us in that process of disciple making. But the book is not just an external book. It is not just a book about evangelism and disciple making. It is a book that is written first and foremost to a church or to believers in Rome. And so this magnificent epistle is for us. We who profess allegiance by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a lot to be said in this epistle that speaks directly to you and I. So I've been thinking about the world in which we've been placed. I can't help but reflect upon the ancient world into which this message first appeared. The Roman Empire, the turn of the, of the millennium, dominated the known world. It stretched all the way from in the east, from Parthia in the west to England. It was a massive empire that ringed the Mediterranean Sea and had a, had a level of prosperity it was unrivaled. 
But there was in that time great unrest. Tremendous unrest. The ancient gods no longer satisfied. The people had grown weary with their native religions. With the mysticism and superstition associated with those gods who most were willing to recognize were no god at all, and yet they had no alternative. And so they were cynical. They were steeped in superstition, yet cynical at the same time. It was a time of tremendous prosperity in the world. People were wealthy. And they flaunted their wealth. They spent it. Yet it brought no satisfaction. The masses were restless. And so the Roman overlords developed various games. Bread and circuses, you perhaps remember the terminology, to seek to satisfy the internal craving of the human heart. Give them Blood, maybe that will assuage their need. And so it was a brutal time as well. It was a time of infidelity. That is, that people were, a man's word was no longer good. The marital relationship was broken and violated on a regular basis. Promiscuity was rampant. Free sexual passion pouring itself out as people dash their brains out on the rocks of immorality. Corruption and cynicism. Political leaders whose words were not worth anything. Men who were in it for what they could get out of it. The great sense of infidelity throughout the world. Estrangement characterize the world of that period. People were cut off from one another. Surrounded by people and yet totally alone. Broken relationships. And in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Galatians 4.4 God sent forth into that cesspool Jesus Christ. The correspondence between the first century and ours is fascinating. Beloved, we live in a time of estrangement. A time when people feel isolated, lonely, surrounded by people and activities, and yet totally alone. Hearts are empty. People have pursued and pursued, and when they achieve, they find it doesn't satisfy. People are running harder and harder, falling further and further behind. It's a rat race. It's frantic. And yet there's no end in sight. The accumulation of personal treasure, possessions, indulgence of the material desires, it's unprecedented the time in which we live. Went on to the internet with a quick Google search looking for the market capitalization of the self storage industry. One hundred and forty five billion dollars. That is an industry that was unknown just a couple of decades ago. 
Everywhere you look, there are self-storage buildings so that people can set aside and store the junk that they have collected as they continue their quest for material satisfaction. And yet it doesn't satisfy. One storage building, two, three, four. How many do you need? How much stuff can you accumulate? The hole in your heart is still there. Won't go away. We have a younger generation that has been brought up, taught that nothing matters. There is no truth beyond them. No reality outside of them. No universal truth or principle that brings coherence to life. Everybody do your own thing. Have your own truth. Life has no purpose. You're an accident. Getting here, your life is one big accident. We examine the lifestyles of their parents. They know that doesn't work. Mom and Dad may have all the stuff, but they're not happy either. Discord at home, marital strife, divorce, single parent families. The world we live in. We live in a culture of violence, death. Since 1973, 46 million lives have been taken while still in the womb. 46 million children snuffed out the pleasure of society. Well, but that's a whole generation gone. We live in a time of, of financial crisis for those who are retiring and at the same time we're slaughtering the ones who could provide for their retirement. It's insane. Yet for convenience sake, we've defined them out of existence. We slay the unborn. This culture of violence can't continue. You can't continue to kill your own children and to live in any kind of society in which there are eternal values. Beloved, the whole place is melting down. The tectonic plates are shifting. The ground underneath your feet is unstable. And yet it's an exciting time to live. This is the time God has placed us for His glory. To display His glory. And beloved, the darker the night, the brighter the stars will shine. We have opportunity to live in a way that is so different that people will be compelled to question the hope that lies within us. If we will live the Gospel. If we will live out the reality of the book of Romans in our own life. Yet the church, the evangelical church, seems to have lost its voice. Everywhere you turn, turn on the television, flip the channels, it's horrific 
what comes across the airwaves, passing as biblical Christianity. It's frightening. It's not just unhealthy in the way that a candy bar is unhealthy. It's poisonous. Joel Osteen, pastor of Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. North America's largest and fasting, fastest growing church. Weekly attendance of 35,000 people. Some are estimating that this church may grow to as large as 100,000 people. He's been called America's pastor. Recently, he appeared on a television special called The Year's Most Fascinating People, hosted by Barbara Walters. In introducing Joel Osteen, Walters said that his preaching is, quote, absent of sin, sacrifice, and suffering. She even pointed out that many of his critics call his teaching gospel light. That is an amazingly insightful statement from one who professes no love or allegiance to biblical Christianity. She is able to see that what he is spewing forth week by week has no coherence to the message of traditional, orthodox, biblical Christianity. His father was a word of faith teacher. A strong advocate of positive confession. That is the belief that a person can either create or change reality by the use of their own words. That is a Gnostic heresy. And it is being spewed forth and gobbled up by thousands. He preaches a psychologized gospel of self-esteem, wealth, personal fulfillment. Where are the statements of depravity and sin? The need for atonement and justification. Where is the motivation to deny oneself and take up His cross and follow Christ? Where is the thrust that will drive us forth to share the message of redemption with a lost and dying world if all you're concerned about is your health and your happiness? This is what the church has to offer. A few months ago, a pastor by the name of Ted Haggard, founding pastor of New Life Church, Colorado, a large, growing church, recently resigned amidst sexual scandal. In his confession letter to the church, he wrote, and I quote, I am guilty of sexual immorality and I take responsibility for the entire problem. I am a deceiver and a liar. There is a part of my life that is so repulsive and dark that I've been warring against it all of my adult life. For extended periods of time, I would enjoy victory and rejoice in freedom. Then from time to time, the dirt that I thought was gone would resurface. And I would find myself thinking thoughts and experiencing desires that were contrary to everything I believe and teach. 
Through the years, I've sought assistance in a variety of ways, with none of them proving to be effective in me. Close quote. You listen to that message. Here is a man standing before 8,000 people and saying that I am so trapped in sin that I cannot get out. I have tried everything and nothing can free me from my bondage to sin. Is there no hope for sinners? Is that the message of the evangelical church? There is no hope. Does Christianity really work? Is there deliverance? Or is it merely a fiction? Something to salve our consciences, to think that we'll be better by and by, but today we still live in the iron grip of sin with no hope of being delivered. Is that what we're offering our neighbors? Is that what your co-worker wants to hear? That you're as bad off as he is and you can't do anything about it either. Is lust really a psychological problem that needs therapy or medicine? Is that the answer? 1994. A group of leading evangelicals and Roman Catholics came together to produce a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 1994. In that document, they wrote, and I quote, All who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics are brothers and sisters in Christ. Close quote. In two short sentences, J.I. Packer and Charles Colson, among others, have written out the Reformation. It was one big mistake. Maybe it was the result of Luther's bad temper. Is that what it really is all about? That we now have leading Christian theologians who can't even agree on a definition of who is a Christian and who is not? Beloved, we need the book of Romans. We need the book of Romans. We need to speak with clarity. We need to speak with certainty. We need not stutter when it comes to whether someone is in or out of the kingdom of God. It is an eternally significant question. You are a believer or you are not. You are justified before God or you are not. Little wonder the average Christian has no idea what he means or she means when they say that Jesus died for my sins. They cannot define it. They can say it but they cannot define it. What does it mean Jesus died for your sins? In what way did He die for your sins? And so what? <coughs> Pardon me. These questions are the difference between heaven and hell. So what do we have to offer? 
What's the remedy? What's the solution? What's the cure? What is the medicine we can offer to a broken society filled with broken people just like you and me? Well, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for it is the righteous, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, a righteous man shall live by faith. The power of God in the gospel. In the fullest, most systematic, most detailed presentation of the gospel to be found, I believe, in all the pages of the scriptures. It'll be found through the portals of the letter to the church at Rome, the epistle to the Romans. Beloved, this is the gospel. But it is not gospel light. It is gospel serious, gospel heavy. As we undertake this study together, we are going to need to work hard. People have taken the Gospel and in a sincere attempt, I think, to try to make it comprehensible. They have inadvertently ruined it. They have taken a fine piece of meat and thrown it in a stock pot and covered it with water and boiled it until it's mush. In the process, they have evaporated out all of its nutrients, or most of them. We enter into the epistle to the Romans, we need sharp teeth, strong jaw muscles. We're going to have to work at it. But like mining gold, the nuggets that we will find will be eternally enriching. This Gospel is the conduit through which God's power flows. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Those who are yet to be converted and those of us who are converted. The Gospel is for us. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Notice what Paul says. He says, For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Just let that settle in on your minds for a moment. The Apostle Paul is eager to preach the gospel to them also. That is, the, them in addition to those whom he has been preaching the gospel to. Churches. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary church planter that Christendom has ever known. Yet his methodology is not just preaching the Gospel to the lost and then when they are converted to move on. It is to continue to preach the Gospel to the saved. And so he is writing to this church at Rome. By the way, notice over in, in verse 7, this is not a formal church in Rome. This is a collection, I believe, of house churches spawned out of, the, out of the amazing movement of the Spirit on Pentecost in Acts 2. Those who were redeemed there going back to Rome and just beginning to spread the good news. 
And so a series of house churches has evidently arisen. He's writing, he says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. To the believers of Rome, he's writing, I am eager also to preach the gospel to you. If he could write to Foothill Bible Church, he would say, I am eager to preach the gospel to you at Foothill Bible Church. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation. You need it. I need it. As we begin to process and internalize and implement the Gospel contained here in the book of Romans into our own lives, we will not only become more adept at sharing it, we will become more adept at living it. One of the reasons I believe that the message of the evangelical church has been muted so much is because our profession and our lifestyle do not agree. We say one thing and we live another way. These things should not be. Beloved, these things should not be. We must become what we are. We must live in accordance with the truth we profess. Not in perfection. And the Apostle Paul will labor away to show us that it is not in perfection. But there's got to be a vital reality. You know, the more we become skilled at preaching the Gospel to ourselves, the more we will become skilled at preaching it to others. The more we immerse ourselves in Gospel truth, the more it will transform us and and flow out of us. This is our home field advantage. Right? This is our turf. We're supposed to know this stuff. We're, We're staking our eternity on the truth contained in this epistle. We should know this thing like the back of our hand. This is your backyard. You need to know every nook and every cranny of it. This is what will bring about real spiritual growth. We're starting out together in a new year. I'm sure there's, for some, a sense of frustration with the results of last year. You look back and reflect and review on your walk with God last year, and it's not what you wanted it to be. It's a new year. We're starting together. Give ourselves to this task. (coughs) Pardon me. Let these gospel truths permeate your life. As we come to understand the message of Paul's epistle to the Romans, it will revolutionize the worship that occurs in this fellowship. Worship of God is the response of the creature to the Creator in regard to what He has done. Worship begins in the mind. It is an intellectual, thought-through response to the reality of what God has done for us. And it, not, it doesn't reside only in the mind. It moves down to engage the heart and the emotion and flows from there. But it begins in the mind. Without a comprehension of what God has done, there is no worship. 
And the more you come to comprehend what God has done, the more you come to see who you really are and who, what God has done for you, the more your heart will overflow praise and worship to your Creator. You're dissatisfied with your worship? It's kind of cold, a little formal, a little static, perhaps unrewarding. You give yourself the epistle of the Romans and it will revolutionize you. There are two ditches, beloved. One on either side of a road. A gospel road. One ditch is marked legalism. Stay out. It will ruin your soul. Another ditch on the other side of the road is marked antinomianism. Lawlessness. Stay out. It will ruin your soul. The truth of the matter is that most of us somehow think the ditch of legalism is not quite as deep. The dangers are not quite as severe. That if I have to err on one side or the other, I'd rather err as a legalist. I'd rather work out my salvation. The Epistle to the Romans is going to strip away the falsehood of those notions. We need to let the grace of God be all that it is. We need to see it. We need to feel it. It needs to wash over us as a congregation. We need to recognize on what basis does God love me? On why am I acceptable before Him? We need gospel food. I prepared for you on your handout an outline of the book. You can look at it now. A very simple outline. I prepared this outline to be memorized. It is my strongest encouragement to you to do it. Memorize it. Begin to make this epistle yours. I will work through it with you here momentarily. I suppose I should deal with some of the front matters that always come up. The author is the Apostle Paul, right? I guess we've said that. This epistle was written probably... In AD 56, maybe 57. That's how you want to date Paul's missionary journeys. It was written during his third missionary journey, most likely from Corinth. There are references, chapter 16, to Sancria, which was the port city of Corinth. So it is likely Paul was writing from there, that is Corinth, near the end of his third missionary journey, writing to the believers at Rome. As I noted before, it's addressed to all who are beloved of God in Rome. It's not addressed to a specific church. It's not addressed to the elders or deacons of a church. It's not addressed to a pastor of a church. It's addressed to believers at large residing in Rome. I've given you an outline here. Like bookends, there are greetings on either end of the letter. The letter opens with an extended greeting and introduction. It closes with an extended greeting and conclusion. So like bookends, either side of the letter. 
Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is the opening greeting and introduction. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, running to the end of the book, 1627, of the conclusion and series of greetings where Paul greets a number of people there in Rome. So you have your bookends that sit either side. In between is your gospel. And the gospel has been given to you in simple form here. It begins with condemnation. 118 to 3.20. Condemnation. Beloved, that's where the Gospel begins. All too often in our desire to see someone trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, we skirt through this section quickly. We move off it too fast. We're uncomfortable with it. We don't like it. It's bad news. It's uncomfortable. It's confrontive. And so we move through it as fast as we can, but not the Apostle Paul. He hammers away. One of my biggest sources of concern and anxiety over the last few months has been thinking about how I'm going to preach through this section called condemnation. Week after week. Pounding away at you and me. This is not what I want to do. This is not who I am by nature. I would love to skip through it quickly and get to the good news. But I am held captive to the text. And so we will move through this section slowly, appropriately. We're going to deal with some topics that are ugly. I don't know yet how we're going to handle those younger ones in the crowd. If it's going to be particularly ugly the next week, I guess I'll give you a warning or maybe it'll be a warning that morning. I don't know. But we're going to go through it. Because we need to understand who we are. The Apostle Paul leaves no stone unturned. He leaves no one off the hook for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he will prove his point. Like a prosecuting attorney, he will dismantle us piece by piece. And it's going to hurt. It is going to hurt because all of us have well-constructed facades that we have wrapped ourselves in. We're pretty nice people. We've learned how to civilize, at least externally, the beast. Paul's going to show us who we really are. And it's going to be devastating. It is going to be devastating. How bad off are we? Paul will answer that question. Is the whole world guilty before God? He'll answer that question. Why are they guilty before God? What about the innocent native in South America or you pick the place. What about the person who has never heard the Gospel? What happens to them? It's a deadly notion wandering through evangelicalism, gaining some level of traction called God's wider mercy. A notion that somehow, and it depends who the proponent is, that somehow either after death those who have never heard of Christ will receive some opportunity to hear and respond at that point. 
problem is that the writer of the Hebrews says it's appointed unto man to die once and then what? The judgment. Beloved, there are no second chances. There are no second chances. It's also uh, spoken of by some that if a person is just sincere in pursuing after God according to the religion that they have inherited of their ancestors, that's good enough for God. He'll let them into His heaven on that basis. Nothing could be more wrong. Nothing could be more dangerous. Nothing could be more erroneous. More conceived out of the pit by the enemy of our soul than that. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Condemnation. one eighteen to three twenty. Justification three twenty one to five twenty one. If it's as bad as you say, Paul, then what happens? How can a man be made right with God? Are you, Lord, going to just sweep the earth clean again like you once did? Certainly the wickedness has risen to such a level that we would deserve that. How can a man be made right with God? Justification. How can the death of Christ take care of my sin problem? That's the issue of justification. How does the death of Christ take care of my sin problem? I mean, if I went to court for a crime, sentence was passed, and then just before I'm to be led off, The judge comes down from the bench and says, hang me instead. Does that acquit me? Does that solve my problem? How is God just if He doesn't punish my sin? I deserve to be punished. I have sinned against my Creator in thought, word, and deed. I am corrupt to the core. In what way is God really just if He doesn't punish me? By the way, just to throw it in, where does sin come from anyway? I mean, if we've all got it, then how did we all get infected by it? These are some of the questions that Paul will raise and answer in his section on justification, 3.21 to 5.21. We have condemnation. We have justification. We have sanctification, 6.1 to 8.39. Paul will deal with questions like, if I am saved, how come I still sin? If I'm really saved, how come I still sin? And are there some sins that I just can't conquer, that I will never conquer? Is that what it means? 
Can I lose my salvation? Is there something I can do or not do or have done to me that would cause me to fall from grace? What about people who walk away? Sanctification. Paul will deal with it. Condemnation. Justification. Sanctification. Restoration. Chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 11, 36. Restoration. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with the fundamental question of has God cut off Israel forever? Has He broken His promises? Those of you who have been reading with us as we begin the, through the Bible in a year have just finished reading the Abrahamic promises, the Abrahamic covenant. Was God just kidding? Did Israel fall so far as to be cut off forever? Are God's promises true? Can they be relied upon? Does He have the power to bring them to pass? And this, by the way, is just not of geopolitical interest. This relates directly to my standing with God. You see, because if God can't preserve the nation of Israel, what makes me think He can preserve me? The fate of Israel has everything to do with your personal standing before God. If somehow He can't preserve Israel, then He can't preserve you. Restoration. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. Finally, transformation. Chapters 12, 1 to 15, 13. Transformation. Now that I am saved, how am I supposed to live? That's the question. How am I supposed to live? And for whom am I now to live? What is my relation to the government? How do we deal with differences of opinion within a church fellowship? Differences of opinion on things like school choice, how I will educate my children. Differences of opinion on parenting philosophies. Differences of opinion on choice of music, entertainment, and a whole raft of other issues that continue to plague the people of God. Transformation. How do we now live? Condemnation, justification, sanctification, restoration, transformation. That is your outline of the book of Romans. Commit it to memory. Begin to make this book your own. In the back of your handout, I included some application questions. There are some Oikos groups that will be meeting this week. They'll be able to use those, but I want to challenge everyone. Take a look at that number one question. The number one question asks you to write out what you think are the essential elements of the gospel. What I want you to do is I want you to write them out on a piece of paper and tuck it in the flyleaf of your Bible and hold on to it. So that as we begin to go through Romans together over the next months, and I don't know how many it is,
Maybe the Lord will come first and rescue us, right? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want you to hold on to it. So that as you begin to see the fullness of your salvation in Christ, you can look back. See how you've grown in your understanding of how great a salvation you really have. A couple of weeks ago, the 17th of December, to be precise, the elders arranged to hand out a gift to everyone who was here at that time, or at least one per family, or everyone who was here. Some of you who weren't here, um, perhaps you've picked it up in the following couple of weeks. If not, then you can see one of the elders afterwards and they can arrange for you to get a copy. It's called a Gospel Primer for Christians. It is our desire and goal this year to saturate ourselves in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is going to be our focus. We are going to drink deeply of the Gospel in faith believing that it is going to revolutionize us in our relationship to Jesus Christ, in our relationship to one another, in the worship of our God, in our walk of faith, and in our evangelistic reach out to this community.